Please turn with me to the second chapter of Luke. And we'll read this very familiar passage concerning uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have come to do. And one of the things that you came to do and have done is with your Father fulfill the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it is for that Spirit that we plead now that our eyes might be opened that our hearts might be made receptive so that this, your word, would settle in our hearts and bring us great hope and great joy. And so come, Spirit of God, as we attend to this, now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last Monday... Uh, Barb and I were in Chicago, and uh, we were in Chicago because our plane from Oakland took us to Chicago and then brought us from Chicago to Orlando. And uh, while we were one of maybe a handful or two of a handful of people who stayed on the plane, everybody else got on off, and then a then a whole new crowd of people came and got on the airplane. 
And one of the folks who got on that airplane was uh, a youngish man, a fellow of, I don't know, 27, 28, maybe 30 years of age. And he was on his way to Daytona Beach, we learned, uh, to visit his father, to be with his father. He lives in Seattle, Washington, and was coming to Florida, smart thing to do, I think, in the wintertime, coming to visit his father for Christmas. But he had to be brought to the plane in a wheelchair. Um, His legs were severely, severely mangled, or at least misshapen. He could walk, but with twisted, mangled, misshaped, deformed legs. He could walk from the forward galley, where we all got on the airplane, to his seat, which was in the first row of seats, a bulkhead seat on the aisle next to Barb and me. He seemed tired. He seemed weary. He seemed maybe a bit surly. He seemed brokenhearted, downcast. And for virtually the whole flight, I thought about him. And I thought, how do you engage a person like this in a conversation about Christmas? How do you engage a person like this in a conversation about what, in a sense, is kind of the second chapter in a story whose first chapter runs from Genesis 15 all the way through the end of Malachi. A long, long chapter that is filled with promise. The promise of a coming Messiah, a coming Redeemer, a coming priest, a coming King. How do you engage a young man like this in a conversation about then what becomes the second chapter of that unfolding story, the birth of this promised Messiah, priest, king. How do you engage a young man like this in a conversation about the gospel? What would good news look like to him? What would good news feel like for him. This young man has a father and has a mother. And I wondered, what would it be like to talk with them about the gospel, what the gospel is, and the difference that the gospel might make for them? And I thought, I wonder how he thinks about God. I wonder how he views God. I wonder if he thinks about God at all. I wonder what his questions are. Does he even think about God in favorable terms, even remotely favorable terms? 
And I wondered, how does he make sense of his brokenness? How does he make sense of his brokenness? How does he think about the future? And then there's one sort of last question that I wondered about on that flight, that two and a half hour flight. And I didn't engage him in conversation. Barb was seated between me and him. And I didn't engage him in conversation. I don't know him. I'll probably never see him again. But I thought about all these things. And the last question that I thought, not because it was last in the sequence, but because probably for him it would be the most important question. If you could have anything from Jesus, if Jesus really exists, And if Christmas really happened and the incarnation is really true, if you could have anything from Jesus, if Jesus could give you the one thing you most wanted, what would it be? What would it be? It's not hard to imagine what his answer would be. If I'd gotten into that conversation with him and we had gotten that far, I am absolutely certain his answer would be, I want to walk. I want to run. I want to jump. I want to skip. I want to leap. I want Jesus to fix what is broken. In me. And I want Jesus to fix it so that it will never be broken again. And if we had gotten that far in the conversation, and someday I'm going to have courage enough to wade in to a person who feels the excruciating effects of the fall that deeply and poignantly. Someday I'm going to be courageous enough to set aside my own fears, my own uncertainties, my own dread at saying the wrong thing or speaking about the most obvious thing. And if I get far enough in the conversation with somebody like that young man, I'm going to take him to Isaiah 35. And I'm going to ask the question, do you know what the gospel is? Do you know what Jesus came for? Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Do not be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. And what does that salvation look like? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And in the place where jackals dwell, where they lie down, grass shall grow and reeds and rushes shall flourish. That's what I would say to this young man if I had gotten deep enough into a conversation with him. And I would point out this one very important word in the text, the word then. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then is a kind of a shorthand. It's a kind of a theological shorthand that refers to a future time. It refers to the day of the Lord. It is a reference to that future day, that day which is coming when the vengeance of the Lord, the recompense of God will come. And if you put these verses 4 through 7 in their larger context, the larger context of chapters 34 and 35, 34 is a description of how this God who will come with vengeance who will come with his recompense in his hand, how that God will deal with those who have rejected him, have repudiated him. It's all summarized if you read chapter 34 with this word Edom. Edom in chapter 34 isn't a particular place. It's representative of rejection, the rejection of God. It's like Babylon, the Babylon of the Revelation. Babylon is not a particular place. It is a representation of worldly systems and institutions and institutionalized unbelief that has opposed this God who has created everything and who has spoken this word of hope and redemption across all of human history. Babylon will be dealt with by God. Edom will be dealt with by God because God will come with vengeance. That's chapter 34. But chapter 35, when this God comes, He will come with healing in His wings. He will come with healing in His hands. He will come with restoration. Touching every brokenness that the world has seen. That day has not yet arrived. It's a there and then. It's not a here and now. It is a day that will then inaugurate this eternity of days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries and millennia when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. The then of Isaiah 35 is pointing to the day of the Lord, the first day that leads to a succession of days that will never end.
days in which the desert will burst forth with color. Days in which deserts will be filled with flowering plants and its beauty will exceed anything you've seen on a spring day in Seattle, Washington. And people who are now lame will dance. And people who are now blind will see. And people whose hearts are now broken with disappointment will be bound up and healed with an everlasting peace. That's where I'd take this man. Is that all that Jesus came to do? No. That's not all that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do so much more. But he didn't come to do less than this. Did he come so that the sins of sinners might be forgiven? Absolutely. There's a story in Mark's Gospel about another lame man. This man was even more lame than the lame man who got on our airplane. He was so lame that he had to have friends carry him to Jesus. You can read it, Mark chapter 2. And why did his friends take this young man? Maybe he was an older man. We don't know how old he was. Why did these men take their friend to Jesus, you know that it's because they had heard of Jesus. They had heard that he had power to restore people whose bodies were broken. And so they took their friend and his broken body to the presence of Jesus. And you know the story, how the crowd was so great that they had to climb up on the roof of the house and they had to dig through the sod and the thatch of the roof of that house. They had to dig a hole in the roof. You wonder what the owner was thinking. And they had to lower him down into the presence of Jesus. The man didn't come to get his sins forgiven. The man came to get his legs fixed. But Jesus looked beyond his broken body, didn't he? He looked beyond his broken body and knew that he had, in a very real sense, a much deeper need. He had a heart need. He had a soul need that had to be fixed no matter what happened with his body. Is the body important? We talked about it last night at the Christmas Eve service. Yes, our bodies are important. If our bodies weren't important, Jesus wouldn't have made an appearance in a real body like yours and mine. He wouldn't have taken a nature to himself like your nature. He wouldn't have been raised physically and materially with a real physical body, transformed, glorified to be sure, but a real physical material body that could eat fish and that could be touched by his disciples. But beneath the body of this lame man in Mark chapter 2 is a soul. 
and his deeper need was that his sins might be forgiven, that he might be cleansed of his impurity, that through his cleansing, through the forgiveness of his sins, he might be reconnected, restored to relationship with the God who made him. Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, spoke to him and said to him, My son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It offended the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people who were there. It offended them that a mere mortal, someone without credentials, without pedigree, would presume to have the authority to extend forgiveness to another person. If you hit me in the face, and a third party walks up and says to you, I forgive you for hitting Mike in the face. You look at that person and you say, what? This is none of your stinking business. I'm the one who will extend forgiveness to the person who has offended me. But Jesus steps into the midst of this world and in effect is saying two things. Number one, he has the authority to forgive you for what you have done to someone else. And number two, and ultimately, your sin against that person is not ultimately a sin against that person, but a sin against me. That was that man's deeper need. The need for forgiveness. Why did Jesus come? He came into the world in order to secure forgiveness so that people like you and me, real sinners who have offended against one another and who ultimately have offended against God, might be forgiven and might be done with all of these silly and stupid and pathetic attempts at achieving our own salvation by our own manufactured goodness, which is never enough. Have you ever thought about this? The prevailing view of salvation out there is this. I'll go to heaven if my good works outweigh my bad works. If the scale tips ever so slightly in the direction of good, I make the cut. You know what the problem with that is? How do you know if you've done enough good? And the other half of the problem is, what do you do with the bad? Understand that Jesus, Mark 10, 45, very clearly, very explicitly says, Even so, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. What is a ransom? 
when the Lindbergh's child was kidnapped. Some of you are old enough to have some familiarity with this. Maybe you've read a book about it. Charles Lindbergh flew the spirit of St. Louis to France. They had a child. The child was kidnapped. How do they get the child back? They pay a ransom to secure the liberty and the freedom of the stolen child. Jesus came. His life was given as a ransom to pay for somebody else's freedom. And because He did that, He's able to say, To the lame man, your sins are forgiven. That's the deeper need, friends. The deeper need is not my broken legs. The deeper need is my broken, sinful, corrupt, rebellious heart. And that needs to be taken care of. Can I just stop here for a second and plead with you? If you've never understood this before, if you've never before come to the place where you have said to Jesus, we've said from the beginning of this service, we're not here to memorialize something that happened in the past alone. What happened in the past on the first Christmas has significance because of what followed The first Christmas, the baby who was born, grew to adulthood, lived a perfect life, died an excruciating, wrath-filled death, was raised from death to newness of life, never to die again, to ascend to the right hand of his Father, where he lives in glory. And if you have never come to the place where you have looked to and at Jesus and said, I am a sinner and you are the Savior as much or more than anything else in the world. I need what you have. Please, in mercy, give me your forgiveness. May I plead with you that you do that. That you look to Jesus and accept the forgiveness that He has secured and which he gives freely to those who need it. That's the deeper need. Did Jesus come just to fix broken legs? No. He came to fix broken souls. He came to fix hearts that are corrupt, that need to be cleansed, so that sinners can be put back into relationship with the God who is really there. That isn't all that he came to do. We've talked about this in the course of this Advent season. And I'll just remind you of these two things very quickly. Jesus came to pick a fight. He came to pick a fight. He came to pick a fight with the devil. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. In speaking to the serpent, God warned him. The day is coming when your head will be crushed. In the process, the seed of the woman who will come and who will crush your head 
will be wounded on his heel. In the process of stepping on your head, you will bite him. And it will appear that the wound which you inflict is a mortal wound. But that wound will not be a mortal wound. It will be a temporary wound. He will rise from that wound. And he will live forevermore. And he will crush your head and exterminate any and everything that has any association with you, all evil and rebellion will be destroyed. Jesus came to pick a fight. Genesis 3.15, Revelation 12, verses 1 to 6. Jesus came to pick a fight with death. You remember 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed. That's language of conflict, folks. That's language of warfare. Enemies engaged in mortal conflict. And Jesus, who himself has been victorious over death, who has been raised from death to life, never to die again. It's true of him. It isn't true of you. You will die unless Jesus comes back first. You will die. But when Jesus does come back, your bodies will experience what his body experienced. A physical and material resurrection from dust and ashes reconstituted, restored, transformed, and glorified, never to die again, which is why Isaiah 35 says at the very end of that chapter, when this day comes, sorrow and sighing shall flee away, never to be heard from again. Can I just camp on this business of bodies for just a couple more minutes. There's a wonderful passage in a novel by Marilyn Robinson, maybe some of you have read it, called Gilead. The novel is a letter, a letter written by an elderly father to his young son describing his life. And he tells stories about his father and his grandfather, the grandfather and great-grandfather of the young boy. And the father and his father have an adventure. They go looking for yet another generation. The great-great-grandfather of the little boy who is the recipient of the letter. They go off to Kansas to find his grave. And they find it out in the midst of a wooded area, completely removed from any village or town or civilization. That graveyard was about the loneliest place you could imagine. If I were to say it was going back to nature, you might get the idea that there was some sort of vitality about the place, but it was parched and sun-stricken. It was hard to imagine the grass had ever been green. Everywhere you stepped, little grasshoppers would fly up by the score, making that snap that they do, like striking a match. My father put his hands in his pockets and looked around and shook his head. 
And he started cutting the brush back with a hand scythe he had brought. And we set up the markers that had fallen over. Most of the graves were just outlined with stones with no names or dates or anything on them at all. And my father said, be careful where you step. There were small graves here and there that I hadn't noticed at first or I hadn't quite realized what they were. I certainly didn't want to walk on them. But until he cut the weeds down, I couldn't tell where they were. And then I knew I had stepped on some of them, and I felt sick. Only in childhood have I felt guilt like that and pity. I still dream about it. My father always said, when someone dies, the body is just a suit of old clothes the spirit doesn't want anymore. But there we were, half killing ourselves to find a grave and as cautious as we could be about where we put our feet. Why? Why do we do this stuff with bodies? Because they matter. And the last enemy to be defeated and destroyed is death. And when that enemy is defeated, bodies and graves will come back to life, never to die again. Jesus came to do that. And so he came to deal with the deeper need, the need of our sin. Never miss it. Jesus came to take on the devil and to defeat him. Jesus came to take on death and to defeat it. But he came to do more than those three things. He came as well to restore broken legs, to restore broken fellowship, to restore broken relationships. He came to fix everything that is broken. When Barb and I were living in Orlando, very early in the 90s, a young family joined our church. They had a small son, a young child. Not long after they came to our church, he was a student at Reformed Seminary. Not long after they came to our church, she was pregnant. And after Bill's and Patty's first visit, to their doctor, Bill called me, and I said, how is everything? And he said, well, we're going to have twins. And I laughed, and I said, and they're not joined at the hip, right? And he said, no, they're joined at the chest. They share a heart and a liver. The girls lived for about three weeks, and then both died. And I was with Bill and Patty when their daughters died. And I went back up to the neonatal intensive care unit where those two little girls had struggled for life. And all the equipment was gone. There were no doctors around in that particular room. It was empty, sanitized, cleaned up, washed, ready for the next crisis. 
And it just seemed so wrong. It seemed to me that there should have been a brass marker on that wall dedicated to those two little girls which said it was here in this place where these two human beings struggled and fought for life. And I got to do their funeral service. And I'm not sure that I referred to this passage, but I certainly referred to the hope of the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth and the final restoration of everything. And I said to Bill and Patty, when you get there, there will be two little girls because I happen to be one who believes the children of the covenant dying in infancy are present with Jesus at their death. Not because they're innocent, not because they're good, but because the blood of Jesus covers them and cleanses them of the sin they inherited from their parents. And I said to Bill and Patty, the day that you get there, there will be two little girls waiting for you. One for each of you and each for both of you. And they will say to you, Come with us. Let us show you what we have seen. And you and they and all of those for whom Christ has died, all of those for whom Christ has given this everlasting kingdom, will walk the pathways, the beaches, the streets, the towns, the villages of the new heaven and the new earth to enjoy all of its blessedness forever and ever. That's the story that I want to tell that young man with the broken legs. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have come to do. And I pray for this congregation of people, each of whom feels the reality of this broken world, that you would move in our hearts and stir us up, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, stir us up to believe in you, to embrace you, to take you for our own Savior of the world. Jesus, for your glory, hear this prayer. We make it in your name. Amen.